We are so excited at One True Podcast to announce the formation of One True Book Club. We're going to get a better sense of Hemingway as a young reader and a young writer, and we want all of our wonderful listeners to join us. For more information, please visit us at patreon.com slash one true podcast. That's O-N-E true podcast. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. The first show we ever did was with our great friend Kirk Kernut discussing the Hemingway-Fitzgerald relationship. Today, we return to that fertile ground, focusing on the way Fitzgerald is represented in a movable feast, what that tells us about the book, about Fitzgerald, about Hemingway, and about their relationship. To help us explore this topic, we are delighted to turn to Sarah Churchwell, who wrote one of my favorite books about one of my favorite books. She is professor in American literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. Her books include Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, and the forthcoming The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and the Myth of the Lost Cause. Welcome to One True Podcast, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm delighted to be following Kirk's footsteps. That's going to be a hard shoes to fill, as they say, but I'll do my best. As I indicated, it's a little bit of a tighter focus where we're just, because there's so many things we could talk about with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, we're going to talk about Hemingway's great memoir, A Movable Feast, which was published posthumously in 1964. And Sarah, maybe the best place to start is as we enter that book or readers who uh, encounter that book, what do they really need to know about the Hemingway-Fitzgerald relationship and that history? Yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial to understanding a movable feast, right? The thing to remember about a movable feast is that it's a memoir, but the emphasis very much follows, or falls rather, on the personal side of memoir. It's highly subjective, highly, it's about his personal memories written very long after the fact. You cannot treat it as fact, and you cannot treat it as autobiography, and we'll talk about why that is so. But it is a wonderful work of art. Don't get me wrong. And, uh, and, and we're, again, I'm sure we'll talk about why that is as well. But obviously, one of the things that people come to in a movable feast is, uh, Hemingway's memories of his, of his relationship, his, his complicated friendship with Scott Fitzgerald. And they always ask me, how true is the uh, depiction of uh, Fitzgerald in Hemingway, uh, in a movable feast in particular? 
And the thing is, is that, that we have these kinds of cultural images of both Fitzgerald and Hemingway that have been fixed by certain pieces of each of their writing, but especially by a movable feast to a degree that probably people don't always realize it came from a movable feast originally. Like for people who've seen Woody Allen's A Midnight in Paris, that's basically a movable feast. <laughs> um, right. And, and people don't always realize that that, and Woody Allen's sending it up. He's not ripping it off. He's having fun with it. And it's a tribute to it. It's an homage to a movable feast, but. It is that. That's where it comes from. So all of our kind of myths and iconic images of, of Fitzgerald and Hemingway in the Paris years, a lot of that comes directly from a movable feast. And of course, a movable feast was written in it. He arguably began it at some point in the fifties, but there, there are debates about that. But he, but he definitely started writing it or was writing it by, um, the late 1950s, uh, and through the months that led to, of course, him taking his own life in 1961. By that point, and it was published posthumously in 1964, right? So you kind of have to keep these dates in mind because he's traversing a lot of time in his head. And it's not just a lot of time. These are not only long memories, but they are alcohol-soaked memories from many, many years before, right? And this is important. And I'm not being tongue-in-cheek. It's actually important. Um, so so we've got to bear that in mind. And then remember that Fitzgerald died in 1940. So Hemingway has had 20 years to kind of chew on these memories and to shape them and tell stories about them and all that. So what I want to do is actually back up to the point at which they first encountered each other. A couple of key things about who they were when they met and then fast forward and take us back up to Hemingway writing movable feast, if that makes any sense. And then, sure. and then to me, it makes better sense to, to think about what's happening. So First of all, part of that cultural memory that I was talking about, that, that iconic idea of them is of Hemingway probably as an older writer than Fitzgerald, that he was actually the older, wiser brother who was advising the slightly foolish and really a bit desperate and hopeless Fitzgerald, who drinks too much, doesn't really know, is not very good at art, is very uh, um, uh, uh, um, self-conscious and unconfident. But uh, in truth, Hemingway was three years younger than Fitzgerald. He was born in 1899, Fitzgerald in 1896. And... Um, Fitzgerald started publishing in 1920 as Hemingway wanted to also break into literature. And of course, Heming uh, Fitzgerald instantly became a star with the publication of This Side of Paradise when Hemingway was just a couple years younger and desperately also wanted to be a literary star. Right. And he sees Fitzgerald become this very popular writer. This Side of Paradise become this kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, and, uh, and, and watches that happen. And then Hemingway goes to Paris in 1921 and continues to try to break out. But at that point, he's you know, he starts to write, he starts to publish, but he has no reputation in America as a writer. And he has a small reputation among literary circles in Paris, which is growing, right? And then Fitzgerald comes in 1924, three novels in, now famous and rich. And he and Hemingway meet at the point at which Fitzgerald has just published The Great Gatsby and is waiting for reviews to come out. So they really meet on this kind of precipice of both of their careers and they didn't know when they met what was about to happen but Fitzgerald was about to fall off the precipice and Hemingway was about to launch off of it into the stratosphere right. and and that is kind of what shapes their time together in Paris and their friendship that Hemingway is remembering in a movable feast by the time Fitzgerald died in 1940 his uh, star was completely in the eclipse he was he was a forgotten man he said he was out of print he was making no money. So from Hemingway's point of view in 1940, Fitzgerald is done. He's over. He's finished. He's a has-been who was talented, but, you know, never made the most of it. 
And and at that point, Hemingway is still at the height of his fame. This is right when For Whom the Bell Tolls is being filmed in Hollywood. And so he's got Ingrid Bergman in his movies. Like, it's just, you know, the, his star is absolutely at its height. But then through the 1940s, Hemingway's star begins to decline. His output starts to stutter. His books aren't getting the same kind of acclaim that they once were. This is when he writes To Have and Have Not, which Howard Hawks famously filmed as the worst novel that Hemingway had ever written. So Hemingway pretends to take that in good part, but Hemingway never took saying that anything he did badly, you know, in good part, you know. So, um, and, and then Fitzgerald's star starts to rise. The Great Gatsby is rediscovered and there's this Fitzgerald renaissance. And by around 1950, Hemingway is starting to get into trouble and Fitzgerald has got this great posthumous reputation all of a sudden. So literally PhDs are being written about Fitzgerald and he's in the news and they're making movies about his life. And they're, you know, and, and the great Gatsby was filmed again in 1949. Meanwhile, Hemingway is publishing across the river and into the trees, which is probably his greatest failure. Mm-hmm. And then 1950 is the year of, of the, uh, of the famous takedown by Lillian Ross in The New Yorker, uh, where basically Hemingway was publicly humiliated as he's watching Fitzgerald be lionized as the great American novelist, the author of the great American novel. And let's remember how competitive, how pathologically competitive Hemingway was, right? Then he wins the Nobel Prize. But then, of course, in 1954, he suffered the terrible plane crashes in Africa that that most people believe then triggered the mental illness because he had head injuries um, and he had a heritable family history of mental illness and the alcoholism that all triggered probably to lead to the final decline. And he begins a movable feast there at that point, watching his erstwhile friend and old rival starting to be talked about as the author of the great American novel, as he's struggling to even write anything and and to come to terms with his own reputation, knowing he's won the Nobel Prize, but feeling like all of his best work is behind him and trying to recapture the magic. And in trying to recapture the magic, he starts writing A Movable Feast. And that's where all of the energy of A Movable Feast comes from. Sorry, that's way too long, but it's important. (laughs) No, no, that's a great, that's great context. But you, so in other words, you see a movable feast as either leveling the playing field or, or, or perhaps even level it or raising it for, to his own benefit. Um, What is his strategy when he's trying to reposition the hierarchy in American literature? I think that as you read a movable feast and now, I mean, I was joking as I reread it for this podcast that I was rereading it for like the 683rd time, you know, I mean, and, and every time I read it, I see more conflicting emotion in it. And the key thing here is that all of that rivalry and competitiveness that I was talking about is very much at the forefront. And it's why he, uh, he needs to cut Gertrude Stein down to size and he needs to cut Ford Maddox Ford down to size. But also, as you read the different versions of it, or even just the the famous 1964 edition, there's so much love in it. And there's so much um, poignancy and memory and fondness and affection for those days and for those friendships, except when you get to Fitzgerald. And when you get to Fitzgerald, he is relentlessly condescending, relentlessly. And that's why I think that there's a way in which it's clear, it was clearly to use a modern word, triggering for Hemingway. And he just couldn't be fair to Fitzgerald. He wasn't in a place with his own mental health, he was struggling with alcoholism, as I've said, struggling with depression. 
I, you know, and, and we know this because he wrote, um, he wrote a letter when, uh, when the manuscript of a movable feast before he died, um, when he asked uh, a Hotchner to take it to Scribner's, um, he also sent Charles Scribner, who he'd been working with for years and years, he sent him a letter saying that the manuscript shouldn't be published in the form that he had submitted because it wasn't fair to many people, including Fitzgerald. So wow. he was aware that it wasn't fair. It yeah. didn't do justice to his own memories. So we get the ugly side of his memories, but not the more generous side, um, certainly in the first edition. The, um, the revised edition includes a little bit more, but arguably not a lot more. Um, and it's very difficult to find Hemingway being generous to Fitzgerald after Fitzgerald's death. But one of the reasons why we can say that a movable feast is mythologizing and is definitely revisionist history is because we have so much of Hemingway's correspondence from the time in question. So he was writing letters at the time talking about how great Fitzgerald was and how much fun they were having and how much he liked him. And, and indeed, he was never quite generous enough to say that he admired another writer's writing in print. Like even, he wouldn't be like, Fitzgerald writes great novels. You're never quite able to do that. But much more intimation of his recognition of Fitzgerald's genius and that they could have two different geniuses and that he was learning from Fitzgerald as he was. Um, and so that, that, um, generosity and affection and friendship is all very present in the contemporary evidence and it gets erased from a movable feast. Whereas he is, he is more generous to Gertrude Stein, for example, in a movable feast. He talks about what he learned from her. He could never admit that he learned stuff from Fitzgerald. But again, the evidence shows that he did. So I think where it comes to Fitzgerald, he felt this just overpowering need, as you say, to level the playing field or to create yeah. a situation where he was punching down. When I reread A Movable Feast for, for today, I didn't really find one compliment that didn't that wasn't couched with a qualification or an exception uh, when it comes to when it comes to Fitzgerald the word you used condescension i think is perfect how he was just relentlessly condescending to to Fitzgerald there was that one moment and you sort of alluded to this in your in the little uh, encapsulated history when 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 they met it, it must have been a magical moment when Fitzgerald had just published The Great Gatsby, and he he said he had he knew he had written something great, and that ca kind of captures the upward ascent of Fitzgerald. But other than that, it's just pathetic. The man, yeah. the 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 description of Fitzgerald is somebody who is just inept, yeah, childish, and, infantilized, and, yeah. and and yeah. and hopeless, right? And and Papa Hemingway has to teach him everything. Right. So I, I would just give a couple of examples of that, if that's. Yes. Um, sure. so, so the two to me that stand out and the thing and again, the reason why I think that this context about the reputations matters so much is that, you know, you, you if you read uh, Hemingway's anecdotes about Fitzgerald in a movable feast on, on the surface, they seem to be about drinking and they seem to be about masculinity. But, and they are about both of those things, right? But they're also about, they're about masculinity in the broader symbolic sense. They're about power, right? They're about anxieties about power and they keep coming back to art. And so I'll just give two examples of that. One from the um, original edition, one from the revised edition for those uh, who know that one. So from the original edition, well, it's in both, but um, uh, which, regardless of what you know, you, this is the most famous one, the matter of measurements episode, right? So, um, so in this episode, famously, Hemingway tells us that Fitzgerald came to him a, a drunk and told him that Zelda had said that Fitzgerald was physically inadequate 
and that therefore she was sexually unfulfilled and that Fitzgerald went to Hemingway as like the older brother, older, wiser guy and said, I need you to let me know if I'm, you know, inadequate, right? Is he, is he, uh, endowed properly? So Hemingway says, I said to him, come to my office and they go to the bathroom, which is supposed to be a joke, right? So go to the men's room. Fitzgerald drops his trousers and says, you see, it's tiny. And Hemingway says, no, 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 no. You're looking at it from the wrong angle because it's foreshortened because you're looking at it from above. Now, this is all very childish. It's literally a pissing contest, right? Yeah. And Hemingway yeah. explaining to uh, the author of The Great Gatsby, <laughs> you know, but but the thing is here, the key to me is that what, what is he explaining to the author of The Great Gatsby? He's explaining artistic perspective. And then he says, so I took him to the Louvre and I showed him statues because only Hemingway understands art. And Fitzgerald doesn't know about perspective. No. So Hemingway has to teach him about that, right? So yeah, you can read it as about masculine anxiety, which it clearly is. But for me, that's also a proxy about artistic power, about who's the greater artist. And, and Hemingway is constantly giving Fitzgerald lessons in art in this book, as well but, as lessons in how to live well. So when I read that episode, 10% of it is, wow, I can't believe that happened. And 90% of it is, I can't believe, A, he remembered it decades later, and B, he told us all about it word, you know, dialogue by that he recalled the exact dialogue um, in one of the more petty performances yeah. of the book, which is not an isolated exactly. uh, thing. Or we can conclude that, of course, 40 gin soaked years later, he did not <laughs> remember it verbatim and it's fictionalized. Right, right. now. So, so, so this is the thing, right? So to me, a movable feast is highly, highly fictionalized to the point where it's mythologized. And that's not to say that it's pure fiction. It's not made up. There are core truths here that are corroborated by other people who knew them, that are corroborated by other evidence. And certainly, so Fitzgerald, yes, he did have anxieties about his sexual adequacy. Um, and those seem to have been exacerbated by the problems that he was having as elder. So I actually believe that he probably did drop his trousers drunkenly in front of Hemingway. But here's a couple of key things. I also think Hemingway was extremely drunk at the time. And again, we have corroborative evidence for this. So one of the things he also does throughout a movable feast is to imply that he was sober exactly. and Fitzgerald was sloppy drunk, but Hemingway was completely cool, calm and collected. Uh, and that's, of course, the famous trip to Lyon where they go to recover Fitzgerald's car. And he basically gives the impression that, you know, Fitz, and it, again, it is true. Again, it's independently corroborated that Fitzgerald wasn't good at holding his alcohol. And of course, for, for somebody like Hemingway, that, you know, is a slur on your masculinity. But but it's also clear that Hemingway was also soused all of the time. He's writing it in his letters at exactly that moment. He writes to Ezra Pound about that famous trip to Lyon, talking about how they hit every vineyard on the way home and how drunk he was and how it's been the first time he's been sober for 24 hours. Yeah, so he was drunk too. So A, he was having a great time. B, they, you know, and, and he doesn't remember any better that so we have to take it. Plus, with a if he's huge writing this in the late, if he's writing this in the later. late fifties, uh, Hemingway is not really one to talk about exactly. sobriety. You know. Exactly right. That's my point. But he wasn't even then. That's yeah. the point. So exactly. they're drinking heavily then. He's an alcoholic by the time he's writing it. You've got all of these years of alcoholism and depression in between. These very very unreliable memories. Now, 
does this mean that Hemingway is not getting at kind of key emotional truths about his about his internal relationship with these people? Uh, absolutely not. I think he is getting at those key emotional truths for him. So there's still, and that's I think part of why they're so emotionally affecting for so many readers. But is it is it a verbatim accurate rendition of that encounter with Fitzgerald? If there had been a recording, I highly highly doubt it. Just no. Also, by the way, the, the Louvre is not around the corner from the restaurant where he says that takes place. So the geography doesn't even, you know, work out, right? But there's an even clearer example, which, uh, which comes from the revisionist, um, version, if I may, uh, sure. which is, which is the Bumby, the afternoon with Bumby. Um, yes. so Bumby was the nickname for Hemingway's, uh, first, uh, uh, eldest son, um, his little boy. And, um, and so in, I'm just checking the, uh, the education of Mr. Bumby. That's what it's called, of course. Um, and so the education of Mr. Bumby is a little anecdote in which, uh, we are told that once again, the drunken, hopeless Fitzgerald is making a fool of himself. But in this case, instead of Hemingway telling him how to, uh, uh, behave like a man, uh, in the world, it's Hemingway's little boy, Bumby. Now, Hemingway tells this story uh, saying that it's, you know, he goes out to the cafes with his little boy. And one time they were out with Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald was drunk. He talks about the fact that he's with Hadley at this point. He says, you know, he takes him from his mother and he says, you know, Hadley and I did X and then I went to the cafe. So the implication is very much that he and Hadley are still living together and that he is taking Bumby to see Fitzgerald, uh, you know, at this point in time. Well, Bumby was born in October, 1923. And, uh, Hemingway and Hadley, Bumby's mother, divorced in January 1927. And Hemingway left Paris with Pauline in 1928. So it can't have happened before uh, October, uh, March 1928, which is when they leave. So Bumby is at the oldest, four and a half years old, <laughs> at the absolute <laughs> oldest that he could have been. And what he says is, what Bumby says to Hemingway once he's seen Fitzgerald be drunk is, does he not respect his métier? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm afraid I don't believe that happened. <laughs> now, no, I that... think Heming Hemingway thinks that Fitzgerald didn't respect his métier, right? right? And of course, he's putting it in his little boys. But so what does that, how much does that infantilize Fitzgerald? To say that, oh, that a little boy who, and he's quite unspecific about how old the little boy in question was, to make it sound like maybe this could be plausible. He's literally like three years old. Is giving Fitch and he also has a little line about how Fitzgerald couldn't hold his drink. Oh, Papa, Monsieur cannot hold his drink. He's three years yeah. old. It's just it's, Fitzgerald doesn't have the sense of a of an infant of a, of a three year right? old he infant. He doesn't even have. He's not acting with the reason that Hemingway's little. But again, that's or the, the same baby. Even Hemingway's little baby is more of a man, yeah. right? It's the same baby who was babysat by a cat. So take it for <laughs> take it for what it's take it for what exactly. it's worth. Exactly. Um, so a few things about these episodes, and you, those are really great episodes to isolate. Uh, the Also, at the heart of the matter of measurements chapter is the kind of paranoid state that Hemingway seems to imply Zelda has caused Fitzgerald to, to be suffering in. And so I mean, Zelda is another victim of these memoirs. Yeah. where what's the best thing Hemingway says about that she has nice hair or something like that, right? Everything else. And so with your, when you immersed yourself in Fitzgerald and your, not just your whole career, but also for, for your book, um, is, is this a, is, 
did you do you bristle at this as being unfair or is there that same germ of of truth in the representation of Zelda? There's definitely that germ of truth too. I think there's a germ of truth in all of it. Um, it's just that that we as readers must not take any of it too literally. And Hemingway has been afforded, in my view, much too much authority in the depiction of both Scott and Zelda, as I say, in ways that people don't always even realize comes from a movable feast. And we just have to take all of the portraits a little bit in a more balanced way, in my view. So, and not give Hemingway so much power um, over how we see these, um, you know, incredibly important uh, and and um, and brilliant individuals in their own right. So look, Zelda and Hemingway had a, had a mutual antipathy from pretty much the instant that they met. And so that's going to color any uh, account of their relationship. My own sense is that they were both, um, well, I mean, I can, I can put it, I can put it generously or I can put it ungenerously. The ungenerous uh, version would be that they were both narcissists and they were both fighting for the spotlight at all times. And anybody who's been with two narcissists in a room knows that that never ends well. So, so that's my basic take on it is that, is that both Hemingway and Zelda needed to be the star. Fitzgerald also needed to be the star, but he wasn't a narcissist in quite the same way. And, um, and he was more of a passive narcissist where Hemingway and Fitzgerald, uh, uh, sorry, Zelda were both kind of active narcissists, like grabbing the spotlight and like, look at me, I'm a genius. Um, and so of course they, there wasn't enough, you know, there was like uh, the, the old cliche from the Western, there's not enough room in this town yeah, right. for the two of us, you know, there's no room in a book for the two of them. Um, and, um, and so, you know, Zelda, you know, so, so uh, in A Movable Feast, Hemingway famously says that Zelda has the eyes of Hawk. She's this predator who's in, and he says he realizes that she was crazy and she was just going to take poor, helpless Fitzgerald down. But at the same time, um, there's an equally famous line from Zelda, which is that she said to Fitzgerald when she met Hemingway that he was all bullfighting, bullslinging and bullshit. <laughs> and, and so she right. saw through him too. So there's a sense in which also they're, they're, if we see them both as narcissists, I'd say the more generous take is that they were both really, really canny and insightful and they saw through each other. They understood each other's manipulations. But they both also kind of triggered those power struggles. And then Fitzgerald was caught between them, uh, loving both of them. And he did love both of them in different ways. But but that became the triangle. The specific charge, though, that she is actively trying to sabotage Fitzgerald's career. Do you make what do you what do you make of that? That's one of the trickiest questions to answer in the Fitzgerald and Zelda story. Um, this is the most famous version of it. Most of the other people who uh, level similar charges either uh, are writing much after the fact and didn't know them like biographers. Uh, and, and, you know, they may be right in their interpretation. They may be wrong. People who knew them at the time, for the most part, saw them in a more what we would, you know, we would call a more codependent and mutually destructive relationship, not where she was setting out to destroy him. Um, she, she, but she was certainly jealous of his success. Uh, she certainly struggled to find a place for herself in it. She knew that she had talent and she knew that she had more to offer than being the pretty housewife, you know, wife of, of, of a genius. Um, and of course, you can think about the the famous, um, uh, uh, you know, the wives section with Gertrude Stein in um, 
in a movable feast, right? Where Hadley politely goes and sits with the wives the way she's supposed to with Alice B. Toklas. Zelda did not go politely sit with the wives, right? So she was highly competitive again. So she and Hemingway also had that in common. So her competitiveness meant that she loved that Fitzgerald was a success, but it was impossible for her psychologically that there was no space for her in that. Um, but she didn't have, she wasn't of the generation and she didn't have the discipline or hadn't until, uh, until she was in her twenties, the discipline to actually stick to something and try to make um, art of her own out of it. Now, does that mean that she set out to sabotage Fitzgerald? You know, I, I wouldn't actually presume to know the answer to that question. I have an open, I think that's an open question. I think there's, I think, because I think it's not binary. I think there must've been times where she was or appeared to be, was it systematic? Was it conscious? Was it, you know, uh, unlikely, but I mean, she also knew that this was where her success lay. Right. But was she unconsciously sabotaging him? Sure. (laughs) I have no problem believing that. (laughs) There's there's that one moment where Hemingway looks at Zelda when Fitzgerald is starting is drinking and now he's and he says I saw her and I just saw how satisfied she was Mm -hmm. knowing that Fitzgerald would not be able to write for the rest of the night or something like that and that so the Zelda character in a movable feast is very is insidious and sinister Mm -hmm. uh yeah to pair with an inept yeah powerless husband so it's a it's a malicious at least that's the it's a malicious portrait, right? Right. But what I would say is to that is this, right? And there's a really good example too. Let's remember the Mr. Bumby episode. So we're agreed that Mr. Bumby didn't say that he that he didn't respect his metier, but that I'm Hemingway, yes. right? But that Hemingway thought that. In other words, Hemingway is projecting. He is projecting through this character, right? Is it equally possible that Zelda was consciously or unconsciously sabotaging uh, Fitzgerald? Is it equally possible that in all of their drinking bouts? That Hemingway felt uh, felt a twinge of satisfaction seeing yeah. Fitzgerald drunk in 1926, knowing that he wouldn't write that day. Highly, highly plausible. So to me, that is also just as likely a moment of pure projection on Hemingway's part, where he is the one who feels the satisfaction, remembers that feeling of satisfaction that Fitzgerald wasn't going to be able to write that day. That's an excellent point. Back after this. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. One True Podcast is excited to be sponsored by Kent State University Press and its Reading Hemingway series, which offers line-by-line annotation and commentary of every Hemingway book. Michael and I rely on these books heavily. Each book is authored by someone whose expertise is that particular book. I am proud to have the complete set, including the most recent one, Winner Take Nothing, which I was honored to edit with Susan Vandegrift, and which features contributions from several former One True Podcast guests. For that book and the other great books in this series, please go to KentStateUniversityPress.com. Sarah, in a, in a few of these answers, we're circling around the same thing that I think we it would be helpful also to pin down. So I know that Hemingway readers and Fitzgerald readers um, 
know that a movable feast has these kinds of characterizations and these sort of episodes, would you say that a movable, like just the very conversation that we're having, is this important culturally uh, that the conventional conception of Fitzgerald is largely defined by a movable feast? Hemingway got the last word because he died last and wrote last, or are we making too much of it because we're kind of in these Hemingway and Fitzgerald circles? No, I think uh, I think the former very much so. I think that we can't underestimate Hemingway's influence on the cultural imaginary ideas of Fitzgerald. And um, and I'll give you an example that comes outside of a movable feast, but is um, is if anything even more powerful. But it speaks to it, and it's and it has nothing to do with our geekery. In fact, all of the Hemingway and Fitzgerald geeks are forever trying to correct this one. But the urban myth has spun way beyond our power to stop it, which of course is the famous exchange from the snows of Kilimanjaro, in which Hemingway, a Hemingway avatar is is dying of gangrene and remembers poor Scott Fitzgerald and his fascination with the rich and how someone had once said to him, the only difference between the rich and other people is the rich have more money. Now, this story has become absolutely fixed in the cultural memory as something that happened between Hemingway and Fitzgerald and that Hemingway said to Fitzgerald. The truth, as you know, and as we know from the correspondence of their mutual editor, Max Perkins, is that Fitzgerald was not even present when this conversation took place. And that, in fact, it was Hemingway who was the butt of the joke. And it was Hemingway, after he married Pauline Pfeiffer, his second wife, who was very wealthy, he was the one who made the gauche statement that he was getting to know the rich. And it was the Irish female columnist, Mary Collum, who shot him down in front of Perkins at a lunch and said the only difference between the rich and other people is the rich have more money. Hemingway took the moment at which he was the butt of a woman's joke and used it against Fitzgerald in print in 1936 in the snows of Kilimanjaro. Now that is an absolutely classic Hemingway move and a movable feast does the same thing. It just does it more so. Yeah. So all, all of our ideas about, I mean, so many of our cultural ideas about Fitzgerald come from these two key sources, and they're both from Hemingway. And the other key one, which he implies in the famous butterfly epigraph, an immovable feast, and has been turned into like a meme um, and a quote, is that Fitzgerald could write, but he couldn't think, right? Well, I'm sorry, the author of The Great Gatsby could think. I mean, I'm awfully sorry. Now, I think that, you know, one of the things that's important to say in all of this, though, is because I realize is I've come in to talk about Fitzgerald, and so I come in as a kind of partisan of Fitzgerald in these conversations. But again, I don't want it to be binary. But to, to your point, is, is does a movable feast have an outsized say in Fitzgerald's posthumous reputation? Absolutely. Is a movable feast overrated or something that we should put aside as a result of this or something that we shouldn't take seriously? Absolutely not. It's one of our greatest works of art of the 20th century without any question. Certainly the, the, uh, the original edition is, I, you know, I wouldn't, I would not want a life without a movable feast in it. It's absolutely, uh, you know, fantastic writing, but we have to do some separating of the fact from the fiction as well. It does seem to suffocate the discussion or the conception of who Fitzgerald is, right? Um, you know, I, I do want to talk about the epigraph, which to me is, I, I think it's like the hub of a movable feast, especially where Fitzgerald is concerned. So maybe we can talk about that in just one second. But before we do, just to extend your point, um, thinking back to how you encapsulated the history of their relationship, you know, are we making 
a little bit too much of their relationship. I mean, w- once once Hemingway leaves Paris, really, what is their relationship in the late 20s and the 30s? So is it because we're reading about the Paris years and these episodes in the Hemingway and Fitzgerald's, quote, friendship, do we have a kind of a disproportionate sense of how much they, how frequently they wrote each other or how frequently they visited with each other, et cetera. Yeah. Is it possible that th- this was like a, 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 a comet of a friendship or a, a enemy ship and then it was, <laughs> and then it was over. I mean, I think that's a, I, I think calling it a comet is a, is a good metaphor for it. And yeah, I think it was, but that comet had, uh, it exploded to great effect, whatever the right way to extend that, yeah, that right, metaphor right. is. And, and so, yes, they're, they're, so by about 1928, their friendship was pretty much over. They saw each other occasionally. It was a three year close, close friendship, um, and a, and a close, uh, um, collaboration. They worked with each other. That's why I think it matters. After that point, I agree, it becomes much less important. And there are a few sad stories about, um, about their, their final encounter in particular in Hollywood, which is really, really sad. And, it's a few letters that they wrote to each other, but the 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 importance of their relationship between 1925 and 1928 is is and this is again why it's important to reassess what happens in a movable feast is because the importance of that friendship is not what it did to Fitzgerald, it's what it did to Hemingway. So Fitzgerald was Hemingway's editor and he was his agent, and that's the part that Hemingway never admits, cannot talk about again because of this rivalry. But we, again, we the evidence is very very clear. The the correspondence is there. Right, we know it. It's it's not just that he doesn't admit it; he denies he it, misrepresents it. Yeah, exactly, he exactly. It. Yeah, right. yeah, he flatly lies about it. Right, he flatly denies it. Claims that Fitzgerald never taught him anything, but we have all of the never had anything to do with anything. But we have all of the letters where Fitzgerald said to Hemingway, "You know, I think you should cut the first third of the sun also rises because this whole first person narration thing you have is no good, and you should start with Robert Cohn and guess where the sun also rises begins." Right? <laughs> um, and but also he suggested that he caught the first third of fifty grand, his great short story. And Hemingway taught I was sorry, Fitzgerald. I see I did a Freudian slip there. We're so used to thinking of it, even those of us who know better. So Fitzgerald taught Hemingway crucial lessons about editing your own work. He helped him get he acted as his agent. He helped him make the transition from the small literary circles that he was in in Paris to American commercial publishing. He got him first. Uh, helped him uh, uh, clarify his contract with Livewright. Um, and then he got him, uh, tr- helped get him transferred to, to his own publisher, Scribner, and to his editor, Max Perkins. He acted as very uh, clearly as Hemingway's commercial agent. He helped work out a better deal for him. He told him how to represent himself. He told him what to ask for, what kinds of rights he should expect. He did all of that professional stuff and he helped him edit. And he helped him uh, establish his reputation. He wrote reviews of The Sun Also Rises, um, a famous essay um, called How to Waste Your Material, A Note of My Generation. Um, he helped, he used his, you know, uh, his, his star power to leverage Hemingway. And Hemingway repaid him by kicking him in the teeth. And it's just a fact, right? And that's why Fitzgerald famously later said that Hemingway would always give a, a hand to a man on a ledge higher up. <laughs> Doesn't it, uh, Hemingway, I, the description is great, Sarah, but it always strikes me that Heming, I've known a couple people like this, maybe not to Hemingway's extent, who uh, if you do something mean to them, they'll do something mean back. But if you do something nice to them, they'll do something even meaner back. Yeah. Like they, they can't take kindness or generosity if they feel that they owe you a favor or something 
it's it it eats away at Hemingway. This is decades later that he's settling the score. It's and you'll when I got to this part in in my reread for today, I'm sorry for paraphrasing, but he's like, oh the the galleys were already cut, and he, you know he's using these like he's using these very specific terms that only a writer would know, even though it's not even though it's not true because he wants to totally emphasize that Fitzgerald couldn't possibly have had a really important hand in shaping the final, the sun yeah, also rises. Exactly. Right. But again, we, we know not only that he did because of Fitzgerald's letters, but we know that he did because of Hemingway's letters, because Hemingway was writing yeah. Perkins at the time saying, Oh God, Scott Fitzgerald's being such a great friend to me. I'm so grateful for all the help he's giving me. Yeah. Right. So there's all yeah. of this very, very straightforward, independent corroboration. So that's why it matters. Fitzgerald helped shape Hemingway. And if I could change our cultural ideas about the two of them in one single way, it would be that it would be flip it on its head and understand that Fitzgerald was the established writer, Hemingway was not, and Fitzgerald gave Hemingway his start, and not just like opened a door for him, right? but helped usher him through it and showed him the ropes and got his career going. No, you're talking even more than artistically, professionally, logistically helped helped broker those- Financially and commercially, exactly. Those really important connections. So let's- transition for one second to the epigraph which as i i love talking about it and thinking about thinking about it uh, do you happen to have it in front of you i do Sarah? i do i have both versions in front of me if you or once you get to it if you could read that out loud so everybody remembers it and then maybe we can kick it around for for a little oh. bit I thought I had them for me. I do. I know I do. Oh, here we go. So um, now there are two versions of it. Um, so there's the Mary Hemingway version in the original edition. And then there is the um, the revised version that is included in the uh, revised edition. So shall I read the traditional, the classic one? Is Let's that do that. Yes. Okay. So I have to do this. Okay. So I'm going to be reading. I'm actually reading it from the typescript in the revised one. So we'll see uh, how. So this may this may not be because I'm reading it from a uh, an image of the typescript uh, manuscript, it may not be word for word if anybody's reading along with the final version of the truth, but don't worry about it. It's close. So he calls it the foreword to Scott, um, which I also love because it already sounds like that already sounds more affectionate, right? It's not forward to the stuff about Scott. It's like, it's like, it's a letter to Scott. It is a kind of love letter to Scott and to his talent, but he calls it the foreword to Scott. His talent was as natural as the pattern that was made by the dust on a butterfly's wings. At one time, he understood it no more than the butterfly did, and he did not know when it was brushed or marred. Later, he became conscious of his damaged wings and of their construction, and he learned to think. But he could not fly anymore because the love of flight was gone, and he could only think of when it had been effortless. Oh, that's great. And before we uh, talk about it, Sarah, I want to just add the, the new ending from the restored edition. Yeah. And it says, so later he became conscious of his damaged wings and of their construction. And he learned to think he was flying again. And I was lucky to meet him just after a good time in his writing, if not a good one in his life. So there you go. It's the, just when you think you're going to get a compliment. Nope. No, it's the rug true. gets pulled from. But the other thing there is that in the one that I read, right, as I said, I was reading from a typescript manuscript is that, um, is that, Hemingway struck through those ugly lines about him be- not being able to fly anymore. 
And, and that's to the point that we said earlier about him writing Scribner and saying it wasn't fair to Fitzgerald. So Mary Hemingway, Hemingway's third wife who oversaw the posthumous editing of A Movable Feast, she and Charles Scribner restored that line, but Hemingway struck it through with a pencil. Right. He had deleted it. So you think the version you read is really the one that should sustain. It's not the no, one. I read, I read out what was published in the original version, but I actually think in this case, the revised version is the right one because we have the evidence that Hemingway struck through the bit that they kept in the original version. And that he, there's evidence that Hemingway was rewriting it to give the version that you read out. And that that yeah. is closer to the latest version of what he left, which is more generous. I, it and is he, more generous. That he, that he rethought his ugliness and added something more generous about, didn't say he's completely lost it. He doesn't know how to write anymore. Um, he added something that was almost generous. That's always, his, that's backhanded. <laughs> always backhanded. So what do you get out of this? When you read the epigraph, what are you, is this like an encapsulation of the, the attitude towards Fitzgerald that we've been talking about this entire interview? Or is there some, is there some peculiar quality that this, this may have? I think there's a reason why this epigraph is so famous. And for me, it captures much more of the ambivalence. It is a much more affectionate image, the dust on a butterfly's wings. It gets the fragility of it. It gets the magic of it. It, it makes you realize that Hemingway did appreciate the natural gift that Fitzgerald had. And yes, being Hemingway at this time in his life, he has to detract from it in the ways that we're saying. But he's but it, it's that recognition it's the one moment in a movable feast where he recognizes Fitzgerald's genius and the magic and that sense of magical dust uh is such an accurate way of thinking yes. about Fitzgerald at his best um the way he could use language like nobody else and uh and and so the so I actually love that epigraph I think that it that it is Hemingway at his best in two senses it's a terrific piece of writing and it is also at his best in that it's his much more affectionate and generous depiction of his friend, even if it's not as affectionate as that friendship probably deserved. What do you make of Hemingway saying his talent was as natural? Like, is it to compliment somebody's talent? Are you like looking under the rock with that compliment? Or are you saying like, well, to compliment somebody's talent is yeah. always a nice thing. Yeah. Or is there I mean, look, I may be, if anything, I may be bending over backwards so that my defensive Fitzgerald doesn't just become this one-sided and make it sound like I, like I just need to, you know, be, I'm, I'm not here to bash Hemingway. I'm not on a Hemingway podcast to, to uh, denounce or denigrate Hemingway. Um, but yeah, but I don't disagree with you. Right. I mean, it's a pretty grudging compliment for, uh, for somebody who wrote the great Gatsby, his talent. Come on. Come on, him. <laughs> because because if you look at a um, which I'm sure which I know you've done, if you look at the manuscript of the Great Gatsby, it doesn't look that different from the manuscript of the Sun Also Rises in that it's been worked over. It's not as if lightning struck and the Great Gatsby appeared. He was a craftsman. He was a yes. This is the thing, right? So, so part of what Hemingway contributed to, which to be fair to Hemingway, he did not create and he was not in it by any means the sole contributor to it. Um, this idea of Fitzgerald as this inept drunk that we've been talking about is pretty much Hemingway. But this other idea of Fitzgerald as an inspired amateur who didn't know what he was doing, but he would just, as you say, he would just sit down and the muse would strike and he would just produce wonderful stuff and then kind of in a you know in a, in a you know not understand how he had done it and like be oh I, what, did, what have i just done it's just 
it's a total caricature. It's completely unfair. It's totally ridiculous. And as you say, what you can, and he was, that uh, reputation dogged Fitzgerald during his life. It made him crazy. He wrote letters and published essays about how crazy it made him. In the afternoon of an author, which was one of his later essays, he wrote about, um, about how, uh, they had, they, the unnamed they, that fatal they, um, had once accused him of having fatal facility and how he had labored over every sentence as a result to stop from, from, you know, that charge, right? So for Fitzgerald, he was, as you say, he was absolutely a craftsman, but he was, he was a genius who understood the role of craft in shaping his genius. That's what he actually tried to teach Zelda when she's tried to start uh, writing. Now he did it badly and they were in a terrible place in the relationship. So it all went to hell, but he did, he did understand that he knew that she had a great gift as well, but she had absolutely no ability to control it. And he knew that editing and discipline were key to writing. And he writes again, he writes about that in his letters. As you say, we can see it all over his drafts. They're also not labored. So what you can see is this honing and honing and honing. He wrote a lot of the great Gatsby. Yes, it did come out of him. And he did like that, that famous closing episode. He wrote almost as it is, um, at the end of the first chapter, at the end of uh, his first draft. But, um, but he still reworked it. He worked key words and key, just getting that tone exactly right and getting it exactly right. And parts of it he reworked entirely. In fact, I think when we talk about the enduring legacy of A Movable Feast and how it, it characterizes Fitzgerald, probably what you're talking about is the most permanent and enduring one, which is that Hemingway loved, he like crafted every word brick by brick, and he was the blue collar laborer, and Fitzgerald was this, you know, wonderkind who, who did, who couldn't almost couldn't help writing the great Gatsby, right? It was just exactly. like, it was a, he like tripped a reflex. The great Gatsby. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's the, so the epigraph in this sense, it's, it's, it's at least interesting to, whether or not, if it's, even if it's not true, it's in, interesting to know that that's what Hemingway wanted you to think. Yeah, exactly. That that's exactly. what he valued. Exactly. Himself. The craft. And again, because that, but that's very masculine as well, isn't it? That masculine, yes. as you say, that building. And of course, Hemingway wasn't working class at all. He was bourgeois as hell as with Fitzgerald. They came from very similar backgrounds, in fact. Um, you know, they're both, I mean, that's one of the things to remember about them, right? Is that, as I said, they're three years apart. They both grew up in the American Midwest. They're both from bourgeois households. They're, you know, it's like they, they're very, very, very similar people. They both had drinking problems. Um, they, you know, they both had broadly quote unquote wife problems, depending on how you, you know, construe that, although everybody in their generation did. But, you know, I mean, so the, so there are actually so many similarities between them. And part of what Hemingway is always having to do is because it's so important to his own artistic ego is that he has to keep finding ways to differentiate them. When, of course, what really differentiated them was their style and their subjects. They're very, very different writers on the page. And Fitzgerald knew that so clearly that he always said that he wouldn't read Hemingway while he was while he was drafting because he didn't want Hemingway's infectious style to get into his own because he knew how kind of imitable Hemingway was, how how much how quickly it led to parody and to self-parody. And Fitzgerald wanted to keep it very clear because he knew that his voice was totally different. Yeah, and so when we're thinking about Fitzgerald as a as a writer, who was Fitzgerald when he and Hemingway met? Hemingway, I, as I re recall, he's like, well, the first novel was ridiculous. Second novel, I couldn't read it. There are a couple good short stories. So he is, he does praise The Great Gatsby. And he's like, well, I think, but as a whole, it doesn't seem like Fitzgerald, what Fitzgerald wrote about really 
captivated Hemingway or, or that he caught on to. Like he so, wouldn't have been a fan of this side of paradise. No, he wouldn't have been. And I think, I think actually this part of uh, his depiction in the great, uh, in sorry, of the great Gatsby in a movable feast is probably the part that I think that I, that I buy the most easily. And that I think is probably the most accurate rendition of how he felt at the time. Because it is true that Fitzgerald's reputation before The Great Gatsby was as a writer of primarily commercial fiction. And Hemingway says that it's perfectly accurate. So there is no reason why he would have thought that Fitzgerald was a great writer, somebody that he would have to have a rivalry with. So then what that does is it, is it kind of twists, turns the screw on Hemingway because what it means is that he's meeting this guy who's famous, he's rich. He thinks of, his, of him as a kind of commercial hack as a lot of their contemporaries did. And as I say, I think that's actually perfectly fair. I totally believe that Hemingway uh, approached Fitzgerald in that spirit and that he believed that and this side of paradise is silly in a lot of ways. And The Beautiful and Damned is unreadable in a lot of ways. And at that point, Fitzgerald had only written a handful of good short stories. So all of the best stuff was to come or was actually just coming out of him. So imagine Hemingway going in this Hemingway condescending way. I'm a great artist, but he's anxious about whether his artistry will be recognized. He's anxious about whether he's going to make any money as a writer. He wants to be a big man on campus. He wants to be a big star and, you know, lionized in literary circles and rich and famous. And he wants everything. And he meets this commercial guy who he thinks he can sneer at. And then he reads The Great Gatsby yeah. and, and oh, hell, it's The Great Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to me, that changes everything, right? And at that point, he sees Fitzgerald start to turn out great art. And he reads The Rich Boy, which is a great story, which immediately followed um, uh, The Great Gatsby. And we know how much it bothered him because it has the line that he plants in The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Right. So, so at that point, he suddenly sees Fitzgerald start to not just be successful, but to be, I mean, commercially successful, but to be producing great literary art. And at that moment, I, I personally believe that was when it started to, to kick off because he couldn't be friends with him on a, on a level that he understood or could control. Um, so I think that memory of the, of, of his first encounter is probably emotionally accurate. And then what Hemingway says, of course, though, is that is that then he gets The Great Gatsby and and the cover, the famous iconic blue cover that Francis Cougat painted, it's called Celestial Eyes, right? Of the uh, the bl big blue eyes with the the um, the woman dancing in them as the pupil and then um, and then the fairgrounds underneath. Um, and Hemingway says it was so lurid. It was like this, it was like this cheap dime novel. But So he says he had to take the cover off to read it because Hemingway, the, the son of, you know, who also likes to say at the same time that he's, um, he, you know, in, in a movable feast, right? So it, a couple of chapters earlier, he said that with Stein, he's a man's man who hangs out in the dockyards and uses language that shocks Miss Stein and, uh, and Miss Toklas. Um, and then he's so fastidious that he can't read The Great Gatsby without taking off this terrible cover. Just can't even, <laughs> it offends him so much. Right? He can't even look it at it, right? It's his aesthetic sensibilities, you know, so badly, right? <laughs> And then, so I think that obviously, I think that's, uh, I think that's, uh, uh implausible. Uh, but then, as I say, what I think the, the, the core of that emotional memory for Hemingway, I suspect, I can't prove it. I'm conjecturing now, but I suspect the core of that emotional memory is his reading it and thinking, Oh, damn. Sarah Churchwell, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. This has been great. Great fun. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number OneTruePod. Or email us at OneTruePod 
at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh, no.